and turn our attention to the evangelicals. And as we close tonight, Pastor, we'll be praying for your need and for your travels, uh, certainly. The term evangelical, right? We've all heard it. Some of you might even say you're an evangelical, and you're willing to admit it, right? Um, it's an interesting word. So let's, let's look at some words here, some familiar words. I bet you've heard some of these, right? We start with this one. You've heard the term evangelical. What is an evangelical? We'll try to define a little bit. An evangelist, that's a term we're familiar with, right? What do you think of when you think of evangelist? Oh, Billy Graham. Seems like I've heard that name a time or two. What's that? Okay, Tony Kampala. I was looking for the idea of revival, right? Revivalist. Not a term we use much, but revival is one we'd use. Someone who is um, an evangelist travels to preach the gospel. And there's evangelists and thank the Lord in all languages and countries of the world that, that it's allowed for sure. Uh, men who travel for that work and for the ministry. Uh, you may hear occasionally hear the term evangel. Um, that's just really the idea of, of the gospel. It's another way to say gospel. It's not so much in our, you know, we as Baptists don't tend to use that term a lot, uh, but it does play with that. All those words are built upon a, the Greek word euangelion or euangelion, kind of depends on who you hear pronounce it. Euangelion simply means the good news or the gospel itself. And you can see in that word the con close connections even to the sound of the word evan evangelical. And this is a term that found its way into the discussion of, of American Christianity particularly. Um, it, it, it sprinkled its way into England during the 1700s, 1800s to some degree. But for the most part, it's been a term that has been applied to American Christians uh, of certain beliefs. And so we're going to give a real basic definition. The evangelicals are those denominations or those individuals, you might say, whose core doctrine is indeed the gospel message. Um, the message of Jesus Christ. Man is a needy sinner born with a sinful nature, needing a savior to put us in right relationship with God. And marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again, as Jesus said. And the reality of the gospel message is the core of what evangelical belief is built upon. And so it's a term that has a history to it. And I want to try to narrow down our view of this, because as we begin to work our way closer and closer to uh, some details in the next couple of weeks, I want to put an image in front of you to help sort of direct our thinking. We think of this circle here as the whole of Christianity, everybody and anybody who names the name of Christ. That would include the Catholics, the Orthodox, Eastern, Russian, whatever you want to call them, the Oriental Christians, uh, primarily our pastor and his direction, that would be considered uh, uh, the Oriental Christians, more to the East. Protestants would fit into that category. Coptic Christians, which would be those Christians in Egypt, for example. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a, kind of gives us an idea of just how broad this term is. And you would even include in this the Christian cults. You know, Mormons call themselves Christians. And, um, and some other groups in the cult category would, would fit that description. So let's take the whole of Christianity in that big circle 
let's, let's look at a circle inside of it. Inside of that all of Christianity, there are some non-Catholic Christians, right? So we divide it with that. This would include the Protestants, the Orthodox, the Oriental, the Coptic, the Christian cults even are still in that discussion because they're not Catholic. So we, we remove the Catholics from the discussion. Let's go to the circle a little smaller yet. Let's go to the Protestants. We're going to have some more discussion on that term later um, in a couple of weeks, but we need to at least a designated group within that. So we'll call the Protestants as non-Catholics, a subset of the non-Catholics. The Protestants become a subset when you talk about the evangelicals. So that's who we're talking about tonight. Now, again, we would feel, we feel very comfortable with the term evangelical. We would consider ourselves evangelical. We would consider our church evangelical. As lots of churches, I'll show you a list in a moment. So this is a term I think we need to have some familiarity with. Now, what's, what's happened, as often happens in the English language, is that the term evangelical, as it was used in the late 1700s, maybe, and through the 1800s, has a different meaning today. Today, if you go see the term evangelical, it certainly does have its religious overtones. It's issues related to faith and belief and denominations in some cases. But it's interesting how it's become a subset of our group that probably since the 1980s, anybody here old enough to remember the 1980s? That probably since the 1980s has become a distinction that was never intended because now it has a lot of political overtones, right? When you see surveys done, I mean, we're getting ready to, you know, hold on to your hats, head into another political season soon, and they're going to talk about the evangelical group. Who are they supporting? You know, and certain percentage of these evangelicals and these evangelicals. and It gets a lot of political overtones, which was never the intent of the word. But the culture has done what it always does. It finds a way to sort of give new meaning to old words. So in the concept of the term evangelical, I'm really going to approach as best I can with the idea of just the, the, the overtones of our Christian faith. We recognize, and I'll show you a slide in a moment, they'll recognize some of those other issues, but our intent is to really try to keep, it, keep the discussion to our faith. So let's talk about the heritage of the evangelical movement. It really does begin here in America in many ways. Again, any, any overtones... Uh, to England might be the only other place you would mention evangelical. And today, there are evangelical Christians around the world. It is not a strictly United States or an American term uh, because the, the work of missions through many denominations have taken the gospel around the world. The term evangelical has followed those missions. So in the United States, though, we're, we would put Probably a good starting point would be the first great awakening. I've mentioned it a time or two, and I'll add a little more to our discussion here. The first great awakening, you can see the dates there, is the early middle part of the 1700s up to the time of America beginning its War of Independence. And that's, you know, four and a half decades, and it's, it's not always at a high. It kind of, you know, wanes and rises and falls. But there's no doubt about it, when you read much of the history of America, you have to talk about the First Great Awakening. Men like George Whitfield on the pictures up here from the top left, George Whitfield, who was an Anglican preacher from England himself, although he would die and be buried here in America. Uh, John Wesley, 
We've talked about him and the, the movement. He, too, was an Anglican priest within the Church of England. Um, began the movement of the, uh, 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 the Methodist subset of the Anglican Church. When it comes to America, it becomes the Methodist denomination, as we know it today. And then uh, the other one there is... Um, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is a Congregationalist. His heritage is in those pilgrims up in the northeastern part of our country. Uh, you may have heard Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, you know, preached nearly 400 years ago. And uh, that, that sermon was one example of what was happening through much of the American colonies at the time, of course, and primarily in the upper half of the colonies, because that's where the most of the population was. From the early 1700s, you know, the population, all the ships were coming in that were primarily going to the ports of the Northeast. The one port in the South that made a difference was Charleston, South Carolina. And so, and then later Savannah, Georgia, and a few others, obviously Wilmington, North Carolina even, so the movement of the mass population of people, the vast population of people coming to America were coming to the northern cities, and the churches were set up there. And the movement of the First Great Awakening, you know, we might, we, again, it's called a Great Awakening. Would have, would have been a series of revivals and movements. There are some really some tremendous stories, I mean, about entire towns, you know, coming to a place where they would, they would repent and come to church. It was, again, I use a phrase often within the traditional churches of the day. It would have been the, the congregational churches like Edwards. It would have been the Presbyterian churches. It would have been the Anglican churches, the traditional churches that had come over to America from the British Isles particularly. And so it's an interesting time. Of course, that movement is interrupted by the American War for Independence. And um, so... The war, following the war, getting America back on her feet, starting out a new nation and everything that went with all that. A lot of political issues and historical issues, of course, we're somewhat familiar with. So the, the revival sort of waned until you get to the early, the, the very last part of the 1700s into the 1800s. And now historians are going to call it the Second Great Awakening. One of the key events of the Second Great Awakening was a revival service held at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. This was what would become the, the model of what we now know as camp meetings. And you can get the sense that in 1801, right, there wasn't a whole lot of options. They, several denominations got together. This was primarily a Presbyterian and a Methodist event. The Baptists were, got involved with it, and... Uh, and so it became multi-denominational, and people came there and stayed for many days. And again, Kentucky at the time was kind of the frontier land, right? And um, there are some interesting accounts. I'll, I'll, we don't have time here. I'll let you have to go chase it down on your own. Go research the Cane Ridge um, revivals, of 18, uh, revival in 1801, August of 1801. The Second Great Awakening, what made it so different was it was mostly outside the traditional churches. It was camp meetings. It was multi-denominational. 
it was very much, you know, had a lot of emotion tied to it. And again, go read some of the details and, and the stories about it, and you'll get a little flavor of what that was about. But it did start something. And again, for the next six decades or so, it kind of up and down some, but through that period, there was a great movement. And of course, America is changing rapidly through that period of time, growing and expanding and lots of political issues and cultural issues. Um, and the Civil War will pretty much bring an end to the movement of the Second Great Awakening. One of the great events of the 1800s came toward the end of the Second Great Awakening. It's the revivals of 1857 and 58. These revivals were very different because they did not start in a church. Actually started in lower Manhattan, New York City, with a prayer meeting. One man in his late 40s, felt a real sense of the Lord to start a prayer meeting that wasn't at a church. It wasn't even on a Sunday. He started a prayer meeting during lunch. Posted the signs like the one you see up there. Prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop by when you can. Stay for five minutes. Stay for 10 minutes. But come in and pray. And then go about the rest of your day. The very first time he, he offered one of these, he shows up at 12 o'clock. Again, this is not at a church. He had done it downtown. So he goes into the room, opens everything up, sits there. It's 12 o'clock. Nobody's there but him. It's 1210, it's 1215, it's 12:20, 12:30. Still nobody there. And then one of the local businessmen came in. He had promoted it to the local businesses. One of the businessmen came in, then another, and then another. Within 10 or 15 minutes, he had six. And they had a prayer meeting. What was interesting about it was, let's come back and do it again tomorrow. The next day there were more. Let's come back and do it again tomorrow. The next day there were more. These grew quite dramatically. And New York, being New York, word spread through the media of the day, the newspapers, right? About these meetings. These were called... Uh, or these were rather more urban. So it's in the big cities. Started in New York City. Even back then, that was a big place to be. So it was more urban. It was outside the church. These became known as the prayer revival or the businessmen's revival because the men who came were basically store owners and businessmen. And they came day after day after day. And these meetings grew with great capacity. The um, reports were from five to 10,000 would attend these lunch prayer sessions. Pretty simple event. They just get a room, have chairs as best they could for everybody. Someone would open in prayer, someone would do a short devotion, and then they ask everybody to participate in prayer by doing this pray, stand and pray verbally. No more than five minutes. And then once you've prayed, you can't pray again because there were so many there. They had to put some rules in place. And people wanted to pray. Can you imagine being in a room like that for an hour, nearly an hour? And the spirit that that created, 
and the repentance and everything's going on. If you've been watching some of the Asbury University um, revival that's being called right now, I don't, I don't have a disagreement with that term at all. Similar, quite a movement. Now, the music now would, was not even a, a part of that one. This was strictly a prayer revival. And it spread. It spread to all the big cities east of the Mississippi at the time. And estimates are in the tens of thousands as to how many people participated in these things. One newspaper in New York, one newspaper editor got a thought. He wanted to write up about the story. He sent one of his reporters out. He said, here's a list of all the places they're having prayer meetings. Go and try to get a count. How many do you think? He only had an hour. He went to as many as he could and came back and said 6,000 is all he could get to. So it was quite a movement for sure. D.L. Moody, I think it was, who said during this time, even at the end of Moody's life and all the things he had done, he said the, the, the revivals of 1857 and 58 were like nothing else he had ever seen. And if he ever had a hope for America spiritually, it would be to relive a similar type of revival. And you can imagine if that was happening in the streets of the cities Monday through Friday, what was church like on Sunday? I mean, how prepared were the people to come hear the gospel preach? And how impactful it was. So it's quite a thing. Again, go look it up. There's YouTube videos about it and people explaining it and telling lots of details. You'll be encouraged by that probably. And, of course, the Civil War changes America's landscape of events of the day. And all of a sudden, the attention is not so much about revival, but about repentance. About America needing to fall back before God and repent of her sins. And so in the process, um, even the Civil War had some spiritual overtones that were undeniable. If you, wanna, if you have the opportunity to read uh, something that really, I think, is, expresses the heartbeat of a nation who has gone through a time of revival and then went through a time of repentance through the war, go read Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. It really expresses uh, a spiritual perspective to much of what America was going through during that time. But all through that, there was this buildup of evangelical, the term evangelical. We're, we're, we're gospel people. We're gospel-centered. And so the evangelical impulse resulted in some of these things that I think we'd probably agree with. The gospel was for all people. Movements of the evangelical expressions were, were done in places they'd never been done, in cities where they had the, the poorest of the poor, the slums. They went to, they went to um, um, the African-American slave community. The gospel was taken there. There, there. there were churches, there were pastors established among the slave communities. It was quite an interesting concept for sure. The evangelicals were, were preaching the gospels for everyone because that was not always what some churches had preached. Salvation is an individual's repentance. Come, in, uh, come individually. And it's a born-again experience. Again, to use that phrase that we're so familiar with. Often emotion was tied to it. If you go read the accounts of the first and even this, and the second Great Awakenings, you'll find there was a great emotional overtone to what was happening. Often very emotional. Evidence of salvation was given through a personal testimony. Now, we're familiar with testimonies. We're not, we're not afraid of them. They don't scare us. It's a heritage that grew out of the evangelical movement of the Great Awakenings. 
Someone would give a testimony of what the Lord had done for them in saving them. They would tell about their experience. Now, we know parallel to this, you've got a movement, uh, the holiness movement that will later develop into the Pentecostal movement where they're going to tie the gifts of the Spirit to this, particularly speaking in tongues. So evidence of salvation was somehow expressed individually. There was believer's baptism. The disagreements became, how were you baptized? It was still the, are you sprinkled? Or are we pouring water on you? Or are we dipping you? We'll get to that discussion more later at another time too. But believer's baptism. The teaching of the Bible to deepen personal faith. There's a, there's a parallel movement I haven't mentioned, and I won't take the time to go in great detail here because I, I do want to come back to it later. And that is the Sunday school movement in America. The Sunday school movement began in London, England in 17, uh, early 1790s, 1792, I want to say. Began in, in London. Why? Because one man, one man, the Lord touched his heart about he could walk to church and pass all these children who didn't go to church. And on his way to church as he was walking to pass these children, and he knew they needed to hear the gospel. They needed to do exactly what pastors talking about they're doing in their ministry. Children who have no other opportunity. And so the church needs to reach out to them. And he took that idea and developed into the Sunday school movement of London. That eventually, of course, came to America. And you had something beginning in the early 1800s called the American Sunday School Board. I think that's the right for, title for it. And they began to influence churches because they were, they were doing something no one had ever done. They printed actual Sunday school lessons to send to churches, right? We're so accustomed to those type of resources now. Again, it began in the early 1800s as part of the evangelical movement. You also had coming out of this the American Bible Society, whose job it was, as by their own decree, they said, we will try to put a Bible in the hand of every American. So you had these, these parachurch groups that were working. Of course, Sunday school eventually came into all the denominations. Such a standard part of, of, of life through that time. And again, we'll, we'll spend a, a separate lesson talking a little bit about the history of Sunday school. It's one of the great stories of that. But the idea of teaching the Bible and learning biblical truth, not just going to church once a week and hearing a pastor. And then there was a structured end-time theology we call this eschatology, is a big, the big uh, theology term for it, eschatology. And one of the things that developed out of this was something we'd call dispensational theology or dispensational uh, eschatology. And that's where, again, I'm not going to chase that rabbit trail. Uh, I think you'll understand. But that's where our church would sit. We would say we are a dispensational church regarding end times. If you've heard Pastor Paul put his charts up and explain this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, that grew out of that dispensational uh, eschatology of the 1800s. Uh, people began to clearly see what was in the Bible. There are some people who got way off track with that. If you remember the story of William Miller and uh, his proposition that the Lord would come back in 1843, from spring of 1843 to spring of 1844, and obviously he missed it. Some people got way off track with their eschatology, but it became a big issue. One of the new things, along with camp meetings during the 1800s, was conferences. Uh, one, of the, one of the leading ones that developed after the Civil War, um, particularly, was the Niagara Bible Conference in New York. 
And it was one of the leading conferences in America to go to to hear some of the speakers of the day talk about end times. And um, so that grew out of the 1800s also. Again, things we're very familiar with. And we hear with some degree of regularity. However, even evangelicalism has always had its challenges. And still today, I would submit to you, evangelicals are trying to sort through some things. Here's the biggest one. The spiritual, and what's more important, the spiritual needs of society or the social needs of society? The answer to that depends on which church you walk into and ask the question of. Some churches today would say, well, we need to meet the social needs first. And then we'll present the gospel. Others would say we need to meet the spiritual needs first, and then we'll help them with the physical needs, right? There's always been this stress back and forth. The Presbyterians have a phrase that that we as Baptists have not tagged on to at all. But the Presbyterians will talk about a phrase of ardor or order. Ardor is a word you'll hear much in English. It simply means uh, an emotional movement. Order means society. So the Presbyterians would say, how do we balance ardor and order? Meaning, how do we balance a spiritual need versus a social need? It's still a stress today. So let me give you these examples. The church, what is the church's role in these civil and political issues? The list is pretty big, starting with that one. What were Christians doing in the late 1700s, early 1800s with this issue of slavery? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a simple thing to do, right? I'm going to tell you about what the Baptists did. Um, much of the anti-slavery movement, of course, was happening in the northern states, and it was filtering into the south. And Christians on both sides of the discussion were trying to make a biblical argument. So I'm going to hold that topic because I'm going to bring it back later. we talk about the Baptist and uh, let you hear a little more detail. The temperance movement um, of, of no alcohol, the suffrage movement of the right to vote for women, we're you know, again, you see just how quickly poverty, which, which grew by leaps and bounds as America went through its industrial uh, period of the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Labor laws, particularly child labor laws. And how does the church get involved with that? Should the church even care? Right? Evolution following the publication of Charles Darwin's book, Origin of Species, in 1859, it finally got to America's shore about 1900. And the teaching of evolution became an issue in the, in the education system of the day and in the churches. And we'll see that one some more, too. And all the other ones, civil rights, elections, abortion, education, marriage, today, sexual identity. What does the church do with these issues, and how do we make our, our convictions known? What do we do, Right? These are, these are big issues, and they're issues that uh, certainly have stressed the evangelical movement uh, to try and figure out how do we best address these and how do we use the resources and the freedoms that we have as Americans to address the resolution of these issues. Uh, these are problems, a lot of them, that uh, just are not going to go away quickly. And you could probably add another, another whole list of half a dozen up there yourself if you think about it a while. These are just the ones that sort of come quickly to mind. So the evangelical church across a bunch of denominations 
has had its challenges and still does today. And there are certainly some, some stresses within evangelicalism because of it. Um, again, bigger topics we got time to address. Let's talk a little bit about the faces of the evangelicals, one of which got up there early, didn't he? Uh, let's, let's at least introduce you to some names. Charles Feeney, I, I want to take you through a century here, more than a century, actually, of some of the, some of the names. These are some of the most predominant names of, of the, of the uh, Second Great Awakening. Uh, Charles Finney, who's a uh, uh, Presbyterian, uh, one of the, he's considered America's first revivalist preacher. Uh, Lyman Beecher. Some of you know the name Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's his daughter. He was a Presbyterian preacher also, one of the leading uh, evangelists of, um, of the period. So we'll look at the dates. We go from Beecher, 1775, Finney, 1792. You've got a couple born in the late 1700s who will minister well into the 1800s. Dwight Moody, probably a name that may be familiar with many of you, Dwight L. Moody. Um, and uh, the tremendous work he did, both here in America and in England, as he was invited there. Um, of course, it's from Moody's ministry that you have the, the Moody Church of Chicago, uh, the Moody Bible Institute. Moody was one of those voices in the late 1800s who was, who was um, very influential in getting Christian higher education institutes started. And um, many of those institutes, like Moody Bible Institute, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, uh, were very influential through this period of time. And institutes today are still an influential part, a key part, I think, of evangelical work and ministry. Many of those institutes would grow to become colleges and universities. Um, uh, the one I still teach at here locally, the Greensboro Bible Institute, is um, uh, still an ongoing entity and has been for many decades. Billy Sunday, maybe you know the name Billy Sunday. Uh, take a moment and, and put that picture in your mind there of him standing on a chair with one leg and on the pulpit with the other leg. I keep trying to picture Pastor Paul in that posture. It hadn't crossed, I hadn't got it all together yet, but I keep trying. Billy Sunday was quite a, an exuberant personality. If you know much of his life, he was a professional Major League Baseball player. Lived a rough life. And the um, Lord saved him. And he took that energy and devoted it to the pulpit ministry of being a revivalist um, across the country. And uh, Mordecai Ham, or Mordecai, yeah, Mordecai Ham, um, Mordecai, maybe you pronounce that way, Ham, uh, an evangelist of, the, again, the late 18 through the early 1900s. These are some of the men and, and the, the notions of what they did. But without a doubt, the face of the evangelicals is owed part to the ministry, the work of the Lord through the ministry of Mordecai Ham. Because one of his converts was a, guy, a young guy named Billy. And, of course, Billy Graham would go on to be that face of evangelicalism for many of us, and certainly through the 1900s. Um, I put this picture there because Pastor mentioned this this morning, right? Billy Graham's evangelistic crusade in Seoul, South Korea. And try to envision that picture of about a million people. And Billy Graham there preaching with his interpreter beside him. 
what, a, what an amazing opportunity. He opened up the doors of so many places in the world for the work of evangelism. If you haven't had the opportunity, I hope you've, you've, you'll take it to go visit the Billy Graham Library. Uh, it, is, it is a worthy day trip visit from here. It's just down south of Charlotte, and um, it, is, it is a great place to go. Um, it's, uh, there's no charge to get in. You will enjoy the history. They have some wonderful history. They just did a big update right before Christmas, too, um, uh, to their history section there that you walk through. You'll see the graves of, uh, of uh, Billy and Ruth Graham and, uh, and some others that are there, too. It really is an interesting visit and worth a day trip and, wor and worth taking your children to see and, and uh, for them to hear the voice. They've got plenty of recordings of Billy Graham preaching to a generation that hasn't heard that voice in a long time. It really is a very good, uh, very good uh, visit. So without a doubt, the face of evangelicals um, was, was Billy Graham for so many decades. And still today, his influence is very, uh, very, very much felt around the world through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, which has its headquarters there at the library. If you think about evangelical churches, I have to use the word typically, because, you know, you can't paint with so broad of a brush sometimes. This would be the list. Uh, there's others, other smaller groups, maybe here and there, but I tried to pick out the ones that, that certainly I think would fit in an evangelical mindset. Again, they agree to a core set of doctrinal principles that are gospel-centered. Now, there's some differences once you get away from that, but we would say evangelical certainly would fit, fit within this uh, definition. You probably got 95-plus percent of all evangelicals within that, even that list um, that would be there. What about evangelical organizations? Well, there's a lot of those, too. I won't take the time to read this list, but you would certainly recognize many of those names. And I went through that list, and there's at least six or seven there that we directly support every month. And other organizations that we have partnered with for the work that they're doing for the gospel. Um, Nancy Campbell Myers is a missionary with the Child Evangelism Fellowship. Lee Nall is a missionary with Friends of Israel, two of our church members, in the service that they do with them. Um, we're familiar with the Gideons around here. We've supported them for years. Fellowship of Christian Athletes, we have a partner relationship with Young Life, Campus Crusade for Christ, and the two branches that they have, Campus Life and City Life. Uh, and so we work with them. Um, focus on the family. Probably most of us have heard of that. Um, the great ministry for so many years. Summit Ministries, which is in Colorado. Uh, one of the great uh, educational support ministries. If you're not familiar with them, um, a couple of great uh, science-related organizations that I greatly admire, Answers in Genesis, um, and the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. I uh, had the privilege of being there just last fall and plan to be back this fall for some conference work. Uh, Institute for Creation Research, located in Dallas. Wycliffe Translators, uh, which, is one, which is one of the world's leading Bible translators around the world. I had an opportunity to be in, in uh, Papua New Guinea and, um, and work a little bit with some of the Wycliffe Translation Ministries there back a few years ago. Uh, Prison Fellowship, started by Chuck Colson, passed away now, but what a tremendous work that is doing in the prisons and for the families of those inmates who are getting fed the gospel. And uh, so, again, and that's, that's a partial list, too. That's not all of them. There's a lot more, but that's a good one to start with. Uh, think of SCORE International not on the list up there. SCORE International takes uh, uh, athletes 
uh, to foreign countries and lets them do that. I took a team to, to a Dominican Republic, a baseball team in Dominican Republic a few years ago. Uh, took high school baseball players from nine different schools in our area. We went down to the Dominican Republic and played baseball during the day and, and, uh, and shared the gospel. And uh, tremendous opportunity. SCORE does a great job. Many outreaches. There are so many. Some of the evangelical influences, some of these I, gu I guarantee you'll recognize. Uh, Schofield Study Bible, familiar to many of us here, right? Without a doubt, the most influential study Bible of the 1900s. I think it would later, you know, be rivaled with the Ryrie Study Bible from Dr. Charles Ryrie. And his book, Basic Theology, that's influenced uh, across denominations, people. Organization like Sword of the Lord, if you're familiar with them, uh, they're, they're certainly more Baptist-leaning, but, but uh, certainly would fit in the category here. Council for Christian Colleges and Universities um, in our country. Uh, TRACS, a Trans-Regional Association of Christian Colleges and, and uh, Universities, and schools, rather. Uh, Museum of the Bible, there's another great trip. If you've not been to D.C., go see the Museum of the Bible. That's a, that's a day trip just to be in the place. Um, uh, Christianity Today, which is a magazine started by Billy Graham back in, the in 1956, I think it was. Uh, NRB is a National uh, Religious Broadcasters Association, which is the, the organization behind the Christian radio you probably listen to. You might listen to. Not every Christian radio is a member there, but uh, National Religious Broadcasters. So they certainly have a, uh, an influence through the evangelical reach of our country. And then there's a couple of organizations, specific evangelical associations, one national, one world, uh, that are a part of this, where they try to sort of be the umbrella to try to get evangelical associations to work together and to, and to team together for the things that they're doing. So it really is an interesting concept to study just the evangelical movement within Christianity. Again, it's broad, as you can see with denominations, but the core being, let's rally to the cause of the gospel and needs uh, that we can help address many of the mission organizations. You know, many mission organizations, and we support many of them that are, that are specifically Baptist. Uh, Association of Baptist World Evangelism, uh, uh, Baptist International, um, Baptist International Missions Incorporated, BIMI. There's many that are Baptist, but there are also many that are evangelical. And their ministries may be supported by several churches from different denominations. Um, and they're doing great work, and I'm thankful for them. So it really is an interesting concept. But again, let's not let the culture redefine evangelical to us. It is a word that I think we, we rightly identify with. So next week, we're going to take a little more, we're going to take that circle down a little smaller. And we'll talk about the fundamentalist. That may be a term you're comfortable with. I certainly have no problem with that term. Um, and uh, we'll talk about the, a little bit of the history of the fundamentalist, and including a couple of people we've already mentioned. We'll do that next week. And we'll see what international speaker I can get from another country, too, right? Well, never know. Uh, remind you, uh, we're, as a class, supporting and praying for Jed and Amy Appel. And uh, the box is out there. And if you can give, thank you for your faithfulness in giving. And we're, we're thankful to support them. And uh, they're uh, always growing family. Well, let's pray as we dismiss and we'll go. Thank you for your, thank you for your time tonight. A little extra with our, our pastor friend. And we pray as we dismiss to ask the Lord's blessings on him, too. Father, thank you for our day. Thank you for the time we have to be reminded of the great need around the world. And I pray that you will bless Pastor as he, as he goes through these days ahead. He has lots of travel ahead before he even starts to work his way home. And I pray that you'll give him good encounters, give him 
individuals and churches that will be able to partner with him for this work that he's come here to remind us of and to give us an opportunity. I pray that you'll uh, bless uh, the Appel family and their service and ministry in the South Pacific. Uh, they're reaching uh, uh, people groups that are just often uh, very much um, unable to otherwise hear the gospel. And I pray that you'll bless Jed and Amy and their family in this ministry. I do pray that you'll uh, bless our week ahead and give us opportunity this week to be conscious that we are a testimony and, and, uh, given, and we may be the only example of a Christian some will see. Uh, give us a sensitivity to that and this courage to stand up and uh, to help prepare and, uh, and train others who are around us, even those young ones in our family. And may you be honored as we dismiss tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great week and Lord bless.